Welcome to The Playlist Podcast, a weekly discussion of films and TV. I'm your host, Charles Barfield, Managing Editor of The Playlist, and in this episode, I'm presenting another interview we recently conducted. This time, we're speaking with Eric Heiserer, the writer-showrunner of the new Netflix fantasy series Shadow and Bone. Heiserer is probably best known for his Oscar-nominated script for Denis Villeneuve's Arrival. He's also the writer on projects such as Netflix's Bird Box and the recent film Bloodshot. His most recent project puts him in the showrunning role on Shadow and Bone. Shadow and Bone is based on the Grishaverse novels and tells the story of a Russian-influenced fictional country that's split down the middle by a dark energy called The Fold. The series follows a group of disparate characters that all come together when someone is revealed to be a sun summoner and could bring an end to The Fold. Over the course of the discussion, Heiser talks about the building of the world of Shadow and Bone and whether or not we can expect spinoffs. He also talks about his time working on projects that didn't come to be, like the English language adaptation of Your Name and his Van Helsing film that would have been part of the Dark Universe. And finally, he talks about Valiant Comics and why he's not sure a Valiant Cinematic Universe can happen given the rights issues. You may know he was heavily involved in the comics and also wrote Bloodshot as well as scripts for various other potential Valiant Universe movies. But before I segue into the interview, I got to tell you the Playlist Podcast is part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes Be Real, The Fourth Wall, Deep Focus, and more. If you want to find us, you can check your podcast app of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, or anywhere else you find your favorite shows. So stick around, listen to our interview with Eric Heiser, where I'm joined by my regular co-hosts, Mike D'Angelo and Brian Farber. Enjoy. I want to thank Shadow and Bone writer, showrunner, Eric Heiserer to the Playlist Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Just to jump right into this uh, series that we watched, I, I think it's being positioned kind of as a YA series because the novel itself is a kind of young adult novel uh, yeah. in the same vein as something like Hunger Games. But having watched the first season, I feel like that comparison's a bit reductive, a bit easy. So you have the YA elements, you have the the young cast, you have all that, but I feel like there's much more of an adult theme and adult nature to this show. And I think some of that maybe is my guess comes from the fact that you had Netflix behind you. So you're able to, to kind of do a lot of creatively that you weren't restricted by ratings. So was pushing the boundaries of YA, that genre, something you had in mind before working on this series, or is that just something that kind of came naturally? Actually, I'd say that's something that emerged from uh, a deeper dive into Lee's books. I think it wound up being a bit reductive of a genre classification. And it's possible that women fantasy authors sort of get automatically labeled as YA authors. Um, that may be sort of a bias in that in the system. Uh, regardless, I, I found a number of adult themes in her books that still resonated with young audiences. So it wasn't like it was exclusionary of one uh, age group or the other. And we leaned into that. We just embraced that. For me, good stories are good stories, first and foremost. Again, with the, was it nice having Netflix say, you know, you can do whatever you want, arrow through the head, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it wasn't as simple as that, but it, I got to say there is a lot of freedom with Netflix. Because someone who has never you know read the books from the Grishaverse, I wasn't aware of this before doing research, but apparently you combined Shadow and Bone with another series, Six of Crows. Like, why did you feel combining those two novels was the way to go? Uh, well, she's done quite a few novels by the time uh, Netflix had given us the green light. And one of the interesting things that she does is cross-pollinates her characters in later books so that you find guest appearances of some characters from one set of books uh, into the other and vice versa. Uh, but 
we, we didn't have any of that in the original Shadow and Bone trilogy. And I was hungry to try and introduce that early on and just get the audience excited about that kind of interaction. It really wasn't a case of thinking, well, maybe we'll do a spinoff series later. It feels more like all the characters live in this world at the same time. It's just that, you know, when she wrote her first book, she had no idea if she'd be back to the paper for a second or not. And here's a chance for us to say, look how far you've come. And let's think about where these characters uh, are in the time of Shadow and Bone. Because another thing that we had to deal with is the fact that the first trilogy, the Grishaverse trilogy that she started with, takes place a couple of years before the events of Six of Crows. And my first run at the adaptation was, all right, let's do Six of Crows and let's do Shadow and Bone at the same time. And Lee was like, oh, honey, that's not going to work. <laughs> like, <laughs> you really can't introduce a magic system and then a magic system on steroids at the same time because your audience has really no sense of scale. They have nothing to, to sort of grasp onto and understand where you're coming from. And secondly, the, the events in Six of Crows, it's really about a drug that... Uh, significantly boosts the power of a Grisha, like like enormously. It turns them into sort of a nuclear weapon of whatever their power type is. Mm. Um, and then they crash hard and it's bad for everybody. Uh, and she says, if we have that in the same time as our villain from the Shadow and Bone series exists, a, sh a shadow summoner, and those two get together, the world is dead. Like there's no coming back from that. You can't, you can't stop that. So let's be careful about that. And the next question would be, what do you want to do? And so I realized I had sort of painted myself in this corner of inventing a prequel novel worth of story for the characters in the Six of Crows, at least some of them at the start, that would explore the origins of their behaviors and some pieces of their history that you really didn't get a chance to learn about uh, when you're dropped into their story in Six of Crows world building in general is such like a difficult thing to do with when you're adapting these stories and thankfully with tv you have the space to really flesh out certain aspects without rushing too much but there's still like a learning curve when you're thrown into you know like a russian influenced war-torn magical land with like a deep history that's split by a literal wall of monster-filled darkness so when you have these books in your hands and you attempt to write that first script, like what is it like trying to condense this down? I have to imagine it's got to be really difficult. And so it's not just like an encyclopedia of terms being spoken, you know, right. at a breakneck pace. Yeah. Well, it's a never ending battle. I mean, you really don't get past that. Uh, it's not a hill you get to conquer and move from there yeah. because, um, you have to take into account people who haven't seen any of this before, haven't read any of the books and are going in cold and, and consider that. But I would say two things helped me in navigating the world building. The first is genre literacy. We have an audience today that is far more accepting of this kind of sweeping fantasy genre uh, of worlds that they have really no touchstone for going in and they hit the ground running with their characters. And, and that's, that's one thing that helps. And I got to say, Game of Thrones helped really pave the way for that in the sense of a massive second world fantasy. And even Harry Potter as the portal fantasy, which is this is sort of a different subgenre, still did a lot of heavy lifting for us. The second is 
the argument that I made to Netflix early on, I said, if we were doing a sophisticated medical show about surgeons and rare diseases and uh, strange procedures, there would be wall-to-wall jargon that you would have no idea what it means, but you really wouldn't care because what you're following is the characters and their intent, their stakes, their needs. And you would understand that eventually you'd start to figure out some of this as it went along, if it was really relevant. And otherwise, it wouldn't really bother you. And that's what we're doing here. We're doing the fantasy genre version of that. ER, so to speak. Yeah, I was going to say house. But <laughs> or, or fantasy <laughs> ER. Fantasy, yeah, fantasy house. Yeah. <laughs> so these novels, the, the Grisha First novels are split into multiple stories and different series of books with the three shadow and bone novels kind of serving as a backbone. And that said, first season definitely covers quite a bit and has a clear ending point that also sets up future stories. Do you have like an overall plan for this show and how long it can run? Or are you just looking to cover like one book per season and just see how the writing goes? I definitely have a plan. I think it's really important to have a plan. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's equally important to amend that plan when you find out as you go what works better than other things. You know, it's always important to be able to adapt or, or shift course correct. Um, but I was also aware that this was a significant undertaking for, uh, for me and for our team. And Netflix was clear, let's just get one under your belt. Let's just, <laughs> let's just see how that does first. And then we'll talk about more. Speaking of more, you you mentioned earlier that you had, you know, you could have very well done Shadow and Bone as its own thing, then spun off a Six of Crows and, and all of this, and you decided to kind of streamline it into one story. Is that something you think, obviously, we can't predict the future, but let's say this is a big hit. Do you see spinoffs? I mean, there's plenty of, of content there, obviously, that she's written. Spinoffs an option, or would you like to keep this kind of localized into Shadow and Bone? Well, prior to the success of The Witcher, I would say it, it's all the mothership show, really. That's all you need. Um, but um, I have opened my eyes to the fact that there are plenty of side paths you can take and uh, other avenues that you can follow, characters that end up being uh, their own stories and their own series, rightfully so. So it, it, there's room for that, as you said, absolutely. And really, that's just a testament to Lee. She'd done 10 years worth of world building and character development in this space let's uh let's uh give ourselves an elbow room yeah so switching gears a bit i have to ask about some news that we had several years ago that you were going to adapt an acclaimed anime film your name into a live action english language feature with jj abrams attached as well uh, obviously, it was recently reported that Minari's Lee Isaac Chung has, you know, taken over the project, but I'm curious what your thoughts are when it comes to adapting Japanese anime for live action, especially for English-speaking audiences. So several folks have tried this over the years, and a lot would argue that they've failed. Uh, do you think there's a trick to it? Did you not see a way forward with it? What happened uh, in general with that project? I'm extremely proud of that script, and yeah. I'm very excited to see what Lee's going to do with it. Um, I think he has um, such a big heart and it matches his vision. So I'm, I'm very thrilled to see where it goes from here. But it's a, it's a long process and mm -hmm. these kind of adaptations require a lot of care and a lot of iteration to make sure that uh, you get it right. Uh, and there are also, of course, a lot of voices in the room as well. 
Toho had been intimately involved in that from the start. And they have a definite set of beliefs on what makes the story work. So it's, well, you know, it's a, it's a high bar, <laughs> but uh, I can tell you that it felt to me like some of the best work I'd done since Arrival. Oh, wow. High praise. Yes, high praise. for us, that's high praise. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Valiant Comics. I'm a big comic book nerd. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and you're you're pretty much involved with the writing for Valiant during its, I guess, most recent reboot several years ago. And that also included kind of this massive plan for like, you know, what's the overall film side of this going to look like? Because now comic books are almost like pitch documents for films, right? And so, <laughs> yeah, they are. It's it's true. But so you obviously we saw Bloodshot last year and that film, unfortunately, was was hampered by the pandemic as far as global box office and all that stuff. But you were you've been attached. Your names have been brought up, obviously, with the comics and a deep history there, but also uh, with some adaptations of the Valiant universe. So what are your thoughts on the future of the Valiant universe when it comes to films? And do you, do you see this as, as something that we can maybe think as part of the future? I really hope so. I think it's got mired in a situation of a, a predatorial divorce. I believe that some of the properties remained at Sony and now some have moved to Paramount and that for, and that makes for a difficult cinematic universe construction. It's not impossible. It just makes it a little more burdensome. And I don't know if they know a way through with that. I can tell you that creatively, it was one of the best times I had in business working with Dinesh who uh, Shamdasani, who was uh, the president of uh, Valiant at the time, he was the smartest guy in the room a lot of the times and carried around this encyclopedic history of all the Valiant characters and really allowed for a lot of fun experimentation. I wrote several drafts of a Harbinger for them uh, uh, as an adaptation that we thought might be the first movie out until Bloodshot suddenly got put on rocket boots. Uh, with the <laughs> And those rocket boots are Vin Diesel. And the rocket boots are Vin Diesel. Yes, yeah. correct. And it went from a theoretical film to a, oh, we're shooting now. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and look, there's a lot of love and there's a lot of fun interconnected work that we had done with those scripts. And even in talking about a few other titles that uh, I wasn't in the right, but I was excited about seeing integrated you know we wind up doing script swaps with other writers of like oh can I use this little bit from my from my script here with your characters and vice versa it, it was a fun puzzle to start to put together and who knows it may come back fingers crossed yeah I know you mentioned uh of uh Harbinger it's like uh I, I guess uh at Sony I think is the last I heard or maybe it's the other way I forget that one is kind of the one that kind of is off on its own right now and and that one for for people who maybe not familiar with Valiant could be one that that could be huge in scope and in 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 popularity so personally I was bummed I didn't I, we haven't seen that that come to life and, and I'm curious you know what you had planned for it but uh yeah hopefully hopefully yeah Fingers crossed. It was a fever dream of an experience. I mean, just those characters and the the combination of power and trauma, and uh, and how that ends just makes it a very incendiary. No pun intended for flamingo, but very incendiary <laughs> kind of situations. 
kind of building off of that, we we know Marvel basically runs the universe right now, and and DC is trying its best to to catch up. So, do you think there's there's space in film and TV for a third major superhero universe like Valiant? And uh, what do you think kind of separates for those who haven't read what separates Valiant from the big two, so to speak? Uh, that's a really good question, and I think it comes down to tone and theme that you really have to show that you're a different flavor ice cream. It's still gonna be ice cream, but if you have people that loved going there for it, then you can offer something that they can't get with the other two majors. And Valiant with voices like uh, Josh Dysart, who certainly really uh, reinvigorated the Harbinger brand and uh, Jeff Lemire and Matt Kent, like these guys really created a new world in that, in that sort of that second age of Valiant characters that I think allow us to understand the thematic and the political bent that a lot of these stories take and why they tread ground that's a little different from the the DC or the Marvel. Speaking of shared universes, you were originally involved in Universal's Dark Universe and a writer for a new Van Helsing film. I think that's correct. Like, what do you think of how that cinematic universe like why why do you think it died so quickly was that a shock for you when that happens <laughs> uh no <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was uh it was a very strange experience uh you know there's certainly a big brain trust of writers around the table and you had a lot of different voices and none of them really could agree on much it felt much like uh when I would go visit my relatives at Thanksgiving where everyone's arguing with each other and like, you know, you just have a mom character, just can't we get along? And like, nobody really is. But, uh, you know, you had some people saying, well, should our monsters all be villains in these movies or can they all be heroes? And, uh, you know, it's somebody else who said, well, we're going to build the plane as we fly it. And, and it was me and John Spates at the table going, that is a terrible analogy <laughs> on that plane. Like, what are we doing here? And uh, people started grabbing up uh, monsters they were very excited about and John and I had a sidebar and said you know Van Helsing speaks the most to us in part because we were saturated with stories where world problems could only be solved by people with uh, superpowers or that who are unnatural or supernatural and that the everyday person couldn't didn't stand a chance against it and we love the Van Helsing character as someone who wanted to write that ship and say, we can't keep outsourcing our problems to people that will eventually turn on us and kill us. So uh, we got hooked into that. And then also, this is a, was a sort of a terrible motivation, but we were like, you know, I don't think some of these movies are going to work at all. So what if we create a character who kills the monsters of the movies that don't work? <laughs> that's that's pretty darn clever. You could act as a, an audience surrogate. So now that we've established you're someone who's deeply involved in developing a number of universes, dark or otherwise, and especially when you consider Shadow and Bone, which is like a streamlined version of this like big universe, do you think there's a secret to this cinematic universe building? And does it take somebody like Marvel's Kevin Feige steering the ship, keeping everybody in line? Or can you really just deliver good content, have it connect and it work? I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows the answer to that. I mean, it's a question that a lot of people have been asking. My approach to it is to just build something that works and that's good and see if you have the privilege of returning to that world. But you can leave yourself a house that has a lot of outlets so you can plug other stuff into it. 
but to to try and assume that you are building something that is already prepackaged a cinematic universe there's a kind of hubris that i think audiences pick up on right away where you they know that you're you're sh you're selling them a trailer to a bigger movie a bigger thing and assuming that they're going to show up and i don't think that's the right approach i think the approach is to do I, look, the cinematic universe for Marvel wouldn't exist had they not knocked it out of the park with Iron Man. And, you know, that scene at the end was a post credit scene really to, to say, I think we've done it uh, and here's a door out. But that was really sort of after they went through so much of the experience and felt, all right, this absolutely can be the first stone in a bridge. I, I want to wrap up, but uh, I want to thank you again, Eric Heisiger, for joining us on the Playlist Podcast Talk Shadow and Bone. Great series. I, I binged it with my wife, and, and she's not normally a YA, quote unquote, person, and she loved it. She absolutely loved it. Well, uh, fantastic. So. This is good news. I'm going to tell my wife. There you go. Force <laughs> her to watch it if she hasn't already. I mean, let's hope she supports you. But yeah, so if you're someone out there who enjoys fantasy storytelling and looking for something to scratch that Game of Thrones itch with like great action, thought-provoking politics, and decidedly less creepy sex, then Shadow <laughs> and Bone is, is really it. And it hits Netflix on April 23rd. So there you go. So thank you again for joining us. Thanks. Thanks, yeah. Eric. Have thank a good one. Thank you.